The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading for this morning is from Philippians chapter 4. Um, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Give me one second to find it. All right, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Shades Valley. I'm so happy to be with you. Uh, Jordan and I have been in total quarantine for the past two weeks because someone that we came in contact with was showing symptoms of the coronavirus. Well, they got tested and the test came back negative thankfully. So here I am making my live stream debut and I'm really thrilled. It's a dream come true really. I've always wanted my face to be in all of your living rooms at one time and so the fact that that's going to happen this morning is great. I had a high school basketball coach named Coach Patrick that said that I had a face for radio. Well, Look at me now, Coach Patrick. Here I am. Seriously, though, uh, we feel the absence of you all this morning. Uh, Your absence and not being able to gather has shown me that I take gathered worship for granted and that I can even see it as a burden. But over the past few weeks, the Lord has shown me what an undeserved gift it is. So, I am thankful for the opportunity to open up the Word this morning, and I'd like to begin in prayer. Prayer that God would do something this morning. That He, by His Spirit, would reveal Christ to us. That He would minister to us. Because we need it in this season. So, would you join me in prayer? Even now, Lord, even now, 
even now. Would you send your Holy Spirit into this place, into every home, and would you open up our hearts to hear your word for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I believe I've quoted these words to you before, uh, these words by the 20th century theologian Karl Barth, but I wanted to set them before us again this morning because I believe they speak to our current moment. Barth said this. He said, Take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret the newspaper's from your Bible. The, the quarantine cycle for some of us, I think, can look like this. News article, feelings of fear. To social media, more fear and probably some anger. Back to the news article, feeling a little better actually. Back to social media, anger again. News video, dang it, back to fear. And on and on the cycle goes. Uh, Bart's words are a reminder for me that as I investigate what's going on in the world, I also need a word from outside the world to see reality, um, to really see what's going on, to make sense of everything, to live and to act. You and I need a word that shapes all other words. We need a word that brings peace, a word that sustains us. We need a word that brings clarity in the fog. We need a word that enables and instructs us. A word that doesn't have us flee from the world, but rather enter it as God's people. For some of us, we're in a crippling cycle of anxiety and fear, not because we've been watching the news, but because how the pandemic is personally affecting us. Some of us have not been able to work. Some of us have even lost a job. Some of us have had family or friends who are in an at-risk group or have gotten the coronavirus and are in the hospital. Some of us feel the effects of this pandemic in a very significant way. It's a weight. It's heavy. And while I don't believe that Scripture gives simplistic answers to everything that we're experiencing, while I don't think Scripture gives quick cliches so that we can move on, um, I do believe that our text this morning does offer us a word, a word from outside, a word that comforts, sustains, and guides us to live in the storm. So this morning I want to walk through the text that was read. Just walk through these verses, and my prayer is that the Lord, through this word, would speak His word to all of our hearts. So the first thing that I want us to see in the passage that was read today is that Paul urges the Philippians to live out their unity in Christ. 
He wants them to put flesh on the theology that he's been talking about. Uh, Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand, but our ushers will not bring you one. I'm sorry you're on your own this morning. I hope you have one at your disposal. Uh, But if you do have one, look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Where Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I treat Syneche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul in these verses singles out two women by name and he pleads with them to agree in the Lord. Uh, I think for Paul to mention these women by name at the end of the letter uh, signifies to you and me how, how important their agreeing in the Lord is to him, how significant it is to him. But we don't know much about these women. They were probably important figures in the community, and it's even possible that their disagreement may be at the bottom of the disunity that's happening in Philippians. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that Paul has great affection for these women. Uh, He speaks of them very warmly as he calls them out. Uh, They are his co-workers in the Gospel. Uh, They are the real thing. They have shown their faithfulness to Christ and how they have partnered with Paul and how they've suffered for the Gospel. These are two mature Christian women that are in conflict, that are disagreeing. And here Paul doesn't lay down the apostolic hammer, but he appeals to them in love to overcome their dispute with one another. He even asks an unknown figure in the community to be a mediator. It's come to that. Once again, Paul wants them to live out the theology that he's been talking about. He wants them to live out the theology in chapter 2. He wants them to have the same mind. That doesn't mean agreeing on everything, but it means working through their dispute. He wants them to put the interest of the other in front of their own interests. Once again, that doesn't mean agreeing on everything, but it means working through their dispute. It means reconciliation. Reconciliation. Recently, I was reading a blog by a New Testament scholar named Michael Kruger. The title of the blog was How a You-Do-You Culture Has Made Us Vulnerable to the Coronavirus. How a you-do-you culture has made us vulnerable to the coronavirus. And Kruger says this. He says, you know, one thing seems clear now. That as a society, we can only stop the virus by doing what is best for others. And not just ourselves. The virus will be curbed when people embody a spirit of Self-sacrifice, a spirit of self 
denial. Well, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are to embody a new way of being human. We are to speak against the narrative of American individualism. We are to show a different culture than you do you culture. We're to be a people who are characterized and who embody selflessness and sacrifice and laying down our rights in love for our neighbors. And so if, if we are to be that people, um, and you and I are to have that witness to the world, then we must be a people who are able to work through our disputes together. We must be a people who are willing to work through our disputes together. Now, the type of dispute that I'm talking about here is not one that's centered around essentials of the faith. Not one that's centered on our statement of faith. It's not agreement about that. It's what? It's a disagreement about the day in and the day out of the Christian life that we've all experienced if we've been part of a church. I wonder, in this time of absence, if it might give us a little distance from one another, a little space to ask the question, do I have conflict with any of my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I have bitterness and resentment that has caused me to write somebody off? Um, Have I caused further division in the body by the way that I have talked about brothers and sisters in Christ with others in this community? Has it gotten to the point even where a mediator might need to be called in? Has it gotten to a place in some of our marriages where we need to sit down with a counselor? And we need to humble ourselves, and we need to turn away from our own corners, and we need to seek a mediator, an unbiased, wise, compassionate mediator to work through what we're dealing with. Has it gotten to that point? We're called as the body of Christ to be a people that asks these questions. Unfortunately, as the body, we can't write people off. We can't retreat into our corners. No, that would be not to embody the theology that we've been talking about through this entire series. Rather, we're to be a people to put the needs of others before ourselves. We're to be a people that seek reconciliation. And that's hard because it means working through daily disputes. But we must do so if we are to be a people that embodies a new way to be human to the world. To the world. All right. Water break. 
The second thing I want us to see in this passage is that Paul uh, gives us insight into how the church is to live in the midst of suffering. Paul gives us insight into how you and I, in this quarantine time, are to live in the midst of the various ways that we're suffering. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody, to everyone, excuse me. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Paul knows the community that he is writing to is going to suffer. He knows that the community that he's writing to is going to experience persecution. And so, at the end of the letter, in kind of a rapid-fire way, it's like Paul saying, okay, listen, uh, hard times are coming. Um, there are going to be many cold, dark nights in your future. And so in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of all the, the crap that's going to happen, it's going to suck. So I want you to hear this. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident. Do not be anxious, but present your request to God. It, it almost feels like the new, uh, excuse me, Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman, speaks in kind of a prophetic way to our current moment in a book that he co-authored in the mid-90s called The Cry of the Soul. The Cry of the Soul. He says this about fear. You can see if you agree with me. He goes, all of us fear what we cannot control. Fear is our response to uncertainty about our resources in the face of danger. When we are assaulted by a force that overwhelms us and forces us to face the reality that we are helpless and we are out of control. A force that overwhelms us and compels us to face the reality that we're helpless and out of control. We've talked about this, haven't we? Daily life has the way of giving you and I this illusion that we have sovereignty. That because of the country that we're in, 
the time that we're in and the resources that we have, that we'll be okay. It's a myth of sovereignty and control. Um, And in the midst of this fear, uh, this crippling fear that can come with this disillusionment during the season, it might feel kind of flippant to hear somebody say rejoice. Act in gentleness. Or, Or to put it another way, act merciful. Act with compassion towards outsiders. Uh, it may feel like in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our anxiety, uh, Paul is tossing a dumbbell on our drowning souls. How do these words hit you? Maybe they sound stale. Maybe they sound overused. Maybe cliche even. I think that's why we need to have a close reading of this text. Because I think on a closer reading of this text, we see that Paul charts a path to rejoicing. Uh, Paul charts a path to joy. Um, a path to rejoicing uh, that's not a dumbbell on our drowning souls but is a life jacket. It's been a life jacket to me this week. Well, what's that path? Look at verse 6 with me. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anxiety here in the text is simply worry without purpose or affecting change. Worry without purpose or affecting change. I think the image is of a person who spins around in circles and doesn't go anywhere. It's a cycle whose fruit is loneliness and despair even exhaustion. Um, And here, I think it's so beautiful because Paul does not exhort the Philippians to suppress their feelings. Um, He doesn't exhort the Philippians to deny their feelings. He doesn't tell the Philippians to uh, harmfully cope with their feelings. But rather, he tells the Philippians to bring all their anxiety, all of their worry, and to lay it at the feet of Jesus. He tells them to bring all that anxiety before God, so that in the presence of God, God can reshape their affections and their minds. We're We're getting a little picture, I think, of what Paul means by rejoice. And maybe it's not the image that we had in our head before. It's an image of bringing our sorrow and pain and tears before God. Uh, One theologian 
said something really interesting about our modern worship. He says this. I think it applies here. He says, when our worship, especially our gathered worship, expresses only victory, it can unintentionally suggest that the broken and the lonely and the hurting have no place here. That's a strong word. When our worship, especially our gathered worship, expresses only victory, it can unintentionally suggest that the broken and the lonely and the hurting have no place here. The message can be, if you want to fit in, first get your emotions in order, deal with it yourself so you can enter and be positive and then go to worship. Okay. Now, this is Shades Valley Community Church, right? Um, we know how to get up and cry in front of people, right? I mean, we practice this, right? So we may say, okay, yeah, we totally don't believe that. Um, but sometimes I wonder if our personal prayer life can say otherwise. I wonder if our prayer life can say otherwise, or I wonder if our vision of rejoicing is something else. Um, I wonder if sometimes our lives can look like cleaning ourselves up before we go before God. Or before we go before others that we trust in this community. Uh, This is why uh, the Psalms are so important for a prayer life. I can remember I had a professor that would say that, and I would kind of be like, Okay, yeah, I mean, we have Chris Tomlin and Hillsong. Do we really need the Psalms? All right? Um, but I see what he's getting at. Uh, the Psalms uh, have a way of teaching us how to bring and express all of our emotions before God. Um we see something called lament all over the Psalms. It's everywhere. Uh, What are laments? Uh, Well, lament is this passionate expression of grief and sorrow. All right? Lament is this passionate expression of grief and sorrow. Um, It's this expression of protest, confusion, anger, sorrow, depression. Uh, And they're so common in the Psalms that it's almost like lament is to be a part of not only our corporate worship, yes, but even our daily lives. It's almost as if you and I are to enter into this rhythm where with all our anxiety and all of our fear, we are to pour that out before God that that is to characterize our prayer life, our communication with God. We see Jesus do this in the Gospels, don't we? We see Jesus in deep sorrow go before the Father. Jesus not only models this for us, but he also gives us the gift of intimacy with the Father. 
It's absolutely breathtaking. We can cry out to the Father as Jesus did. We can trust that the Father loves us like he loves his own son. That's something worth pondering this week. We can trust that the Father hears our prayers when we come to him and express the deepest, darkest places of our soul. Why? Because he hears his son's prayers and he loves his son. And so in Christ, we can have assurance that he hears us and he loves us. What's so beautiful, I think, about biblical lament is that it's not just about venting or getting out all our emotions. It's not just about that. Um, it's certainly not a form of self-pity. Right? Um, biblical lament, if I can say it this way, biblical lament is about movement and it's about reshaping. It's about movement and reshaping. Uh, it's about moving our grief. It's about moving our confusion and, and our protest uh, towards God. Right? Um, out from ourselves and out from the cycle that we can be trapped in. It's about having our affections reshaped in his presence, and it's also about having our minds reshaped in his presence. Biblical lament is about renewing our minds. With not only lament, but also thanksgiving. And praise. It's all tightly connected together. Right? Look at the final verses with me. Uh, in the final verses, Paul speaks to the importance of what we set our mind on. Right? He speaks to the importance of what we set our minds on. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, you've probably heard this verse before. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I really love what the commentator John Phillips says on this passage. He says this, Paul is challenging us to think on, to think out, to take account of things that are true, things that are honorable, honorable. Things that are just, pure, lovely, and of good report. And he asked this question, and where will such thoughts lead us? To Jesus. They'll lead us to Jesus. Uh, I think we know this, but it, it is a good reminder for you and I. 
Every time that the church speaks about the culture around us, it doesn't have to be negative. Uh, Not everything that we see in the culture around us has to be rejected. Because of God's common grace, we can look out into the world and we can affirm where we see justice, where we see goodness, where we see wisdom and beauty in the broader world. And we can learn from the culture. And we can then go out in the culture um, as citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ and cultivate um, in the world around us, bearing witness to who Jesus is. And as we do that, as disciples of him, as we look at the culture around us, and as we look at the world around us, no doubt... Everything will be seen through the lenses of the gospel, right? It has to be. And, and everything will be seen through the lenses of his word that speaks to us and gives us clarity from outside the world, right? Yes, but also when we see beauty and we see goodness and we see truth, um, that should act like a ramp or an arrow pointing us back to Jesus and who He is. It should lead us to worship and wonder of God. It should point back to Him. That's what creation was created to do, right? It was created to point to Him, to point to Jesus and all of His wonder and all of His incomprehensibility. Uh, The theologian Abraham Kuyper said this, there's not a square inch of the whole domain of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What a beautiful statement. Everything in the world, good and beautiful, was created to point to Jesus. And when we see goodness, when we see beauty, When we see truth, it should point us back to Him and stir our amazement of who He is. Who He is. This week, the youth had a Zoom gathering. We started out by playing a game I call Quarantine. In the game called Quarantine, you imagine that you're quarantined. And you have to choose one book, one movie, and one album. A lot of the students ask, what's an album? So we had to change it to playlist. Um, But when uh, people started saying what book they would choose, I learned two things. One, I learned that David Reese doesn't read books, And two, I learned that a lot of the students uh, love and chose C.S. Lewis books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is a great Christian answer for youth group, right? A lot better than Left Behind series. But in in C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, which many of us are familiar with, uh, Mr. and Miss 
beaver are describing Aslan. Do you remember this? Um, And they're describing him as the one that can rescue Narnia from evil, from, from any threat or danger. Lucy, in response to this discovery, is uncertain that she wants to be in the presence of such a creature. And so she asks the question, is he safe? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The scriptures remind us something we forget, and that is that God is to be feared more than anything in creation. That God is to be feared more than the coronavirus. And Scripture also reveals that, yeah, because of this, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. He's good. You see, biblical lament starts by bringing our fears and our anxiety before God. It starts by bringing our deep sorrow, our complaints, all of that, but it doesn't end there. It ends with God. It ends with praise and thanks, uh, thankfulness of who He is and what He's done for us. Without denying the pain that we are experience or suppressing it, nonetheless, in our pain, we're brought into the presence of God. We're brought into the One who is more wonderful than anything in this world. We're brought, into the, we're brought before the One who's greater than any of our problems. The, uh, the reformer Martin Luther said this. He said, uh, We say without hesitation that he who contemplates God's suffering for a day, an hour, yes, only a quarter of an hour, does better than to fast a whole year. Now, Luther, in his own provocative way, right, I think makes a point. He makes the point that our souls were created to constantly stare at Jesus. We were created to stare and to wonder and to dive the depths of his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. This is what you and I will be doing for eternity. This is what Paul has done in chapter 2, right? He set the Philippians' eyes and minds on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In our suffering, when we set our minds on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we set our minds on the nearness of God. We set our minds on a God who has suffered with us. And as we gaze upon His resurrection and His ascension, we see what? We set our minds on the power of God. And we set our minds on the reality that God can do something crazy. That he can work redemptively in our lives and for his kingdom no matter what's happening. He's powerful and he's capable to do that. He's not safe, but he's good. 
but he's good. The final stop on the path of rejoicing is peace. That's what Paul says. In verse 7 he says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. In verse 9 he says, Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The picture here that Paul gives is not one where Jesus is in a parade throwing peace candy down to us on the side, right? And makes us feel better. I don't know if you had that image in your mind, but just want to go ahead and dispel that. No, what's the image? It's the image of a father or a mother hugging a child who's scared. It's a peace that comes from presence. It's a peace that comes from the presence of God. So Shades, in this season, with all this uncertainty, and with all this suffering, I want to tell you to rejoice. But don't hear me wrong. Remember the path. Remember the path of lament, of praise, of thanksgiving, of setting our minds on the incomprehensibility of Jesus Christ, of his goodness and greatness, from which will come, most certainly, peace. He's not safe, but he's good. But he's good. Let's pray together. Father, you are greater than anything in this world. And I don't know why, but I'm so reluctant to bring the deepest parts of my heart to you. And so I pray this week, as we look at the news stories, that we would also look at your word, that we would receive a word from the outside, that you would minister to our hearts that you would fill our minds with awe and wonder, and that we would do what we will be doing for the rest of eternity, and that is gazing upon your Son. Would you guide us by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, and for his glory. Amen.